Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 61, The Ascension of the Last Romanov. Last episode, the reactionary Tsar Alexander III died, leaving his unprepared son, Nicholas Alexandrovich Romanov, the new Tsar and ruler of a Russia that was struggling to catch up to the other European powers. Threats filled the air on both the western and eastern borders, but Nicholas II was unaware of the looming dangers. Born in 1868, the son of Alexander III and Maria Fyodorovna, Nicholas was a coddled boy, as were all the children of the Tsar. They grew up with the belief that God had willed the control and ownership of all of Russia into the hands of the Romanov family. It was also their belief that the heart of the Russian people was also owned by the Romanovs as well. To understand the new Tsar, one only has to read a telling quote about Nicholas II, which comes from the French ambassador Maurice Paleologue in his memoirs. Quote, Nicholas has not a single vice, but he has the worst fault an autocratic sovereign could possibly have, a want of personality. He is always following the lead of others. Aside from the personality issue and lack of leadership skills, he was also quite short. He was estimated to be a mere five feet six inches, obviously more like his diminutive mother than the imposing figure of his father. When people, especially troops, first saw him, they were awestruck at how terribly small he seemed. This was not apparent in the photos of the Tsar, as he was always made out to look taller, as many in his entourage often bowed before him, giving the impression of a taller man. That and his horses, which he loved to ride, especially during military demonstrations and parades, were always the tallest one. So how did this Tsar, head of the Romanov family, become such a historically tragic figure? And who was the real Nicholas II? This is what I will attempt to do over the next few episodes, where I will present all the viewpoints and historical data, and let you, my loyal listeners, make the final determination. To be honest, before I dove into the subject of the last Tsar, I must admit that I had a preconceived prejudice against Nicholas II, and especially his wife, Tsarina Alexandra, and her allowance of the religious mystic, Rasputin, to gain influence over the ruling family. Much of my beliefs stemmed from my two college Russian history professors, who had a truly dismal view of Nicholas. But as I've dug in deeper into the research and writings, I have greatly softened my opinion, but not so much as to not believe that the last Romanov was clearly the wrong man at the wrong time. Nicholas fashioned himself a modern-day Alexis I, but in reality, he was much more like the first one, Michael, who was equally weak. Another similarity between the first and the last Tsar of the Romanov reign was the fact that both had been made saints by the Russian Orthodox Church. But Nicholas so revered the second Tsar in the Romanov line, so much so that he named his only son Alexis. But before we get into that any deeper, let's go back to the beginning again. Born on May 18, 1868, Nicholas Alexandrovich was the first child of Alexander III and Empress Maria, who was originally known as Princess Dagmar of Denmark. And this woman would outlive her husband, son, and many of her other children. 
Their life was one of incredible opulence, which was in stark contrast from the lives of 95% of their subjects, especially the peasants, whom they felt were the staunchest supporters of the Romanov dynasty. Nicholas was raised under the reactionary moods of his dominant father. The now totally ingrained belief by the family was that Russia was a Romanov holding, not a standalone nation, something that neither could exist without the other. This belief caused Nicholas to never become intellectually or emotionally capable of fathoming the notion that you could have a Russia without a Romanov at its helm. I cannot stress this enough, and we'll come back to this concept many times over the next few episodes. Having said this, Empress Maria did not ever feel that Nicholas was the right son for the job, as she privately wished that he would relinquish the throne in favor of his younger brother Michael, something he would have to do under duress in 1918. She knew that Nicky, as he was known affectionately by his mother, was too gentle and indecisive to handle the job as Tsar and ruler of as vast a nation as Russia. Well, when Alexander III died on October 20th, 1894, Nicholas was engaged, but not yet married, to Princess Alex of Hesse-Darmstadt, the granddaughter of Queen Victoria of England. She was rushed to the Lavadia Palace in the Crimea, where Alexander lay dying, which allowed the Tsar to give his blessing to the Union before he passed. Now Tsar, but without a real backbone, Nicholas relied heavily on his family to help him make an important decision something he would do often during his reign, oftentimes to his and Russia's detriment. The first decision was when to marry Alex. He and his mother Maria wanted to have their wedding right then and there in the Lavadia Palace before Alexander's funeral. The four Grand Dukes, though, the Tsars, the late Tsar's brothers, argued against a hasty wedding, which Nicholas acceded to. At Alexander's funeral, the attendees were the who's who of European royalty. Two future kings of England, Albert and George, attended along with Prince Henry, brother of the German Kaiser, as well as the kings of Serbia, Denmark, and Greece. Also in the, in the official entourage were numerous members of the old Boyar families, and many, if not all, of the vast number of Romanovs. Few who attended thought much of Nicholas. Now, the wedding of Nicholas and his newly converted wife, now known as Alexandra, was held one week after the late Tsar's entombment on November 26, 1894, under very somber circumstances. No honeymoon ensued, and no great celebrations were held due to the period of mourning Nicholas ordered. Within a year, they had their first child, a daughter, Olga, in November of 1895. What should be said of this union of two very private and shy people was that despite all the negative things said about them, they were deeply in love with each other and highly devoted and protective of one another. This would carry on until their murders 23 years later. After a period of mourning for the late Tsar, a celebration of the coronation of Nicholas II and Alexandra was planned beginning on May 16, 1896. As was custom for hundreds of years, the new Romanov Tsar would be coronated not in St. Petersburg, but in the old capital of Moscow. The coronation held in the Cathedral of the Assumption in the Kremlin was an incredible spectacle, lasting five hours. Nicholas sat upon the magnificent diamond throne, used first, of course, by Alexis I. 
Alexandra sat on an even more ancient and revered throne, one brought to Russia by Zoe Paleolog when she married Ivan the Great back in 1472. But this coronation was not to be the great celebration that was planned and hoped for. Instead, it was to be a scene of great tragedy, one that would mar the entire reign of Nicholas II, and would come to represent all that could and would go wrong during his time as Tsar. On May 18th, the day that was designated as the People's Celebration Day, Moscow was inundated with more than the expected number of people. Estimates claim that over 500,000 were gathering near the Kodinka field to catch a glimpse of their little father, the Tsar. The field, an ill-chosen site, was a military practice field pockmarked with trenches and bomb craters. Crowd control was to be manned by a few hundred mounted Cossacks, a number which was to be woefully low given the size of the crowd. Grand Duke Sergei was the man in charge and would be the person to take the brunt of the blame for the mayhem and carnage that would ensue. Tables were set up in the field to give souvenirs to the people, a cup with a royal insignia for men and a kerchief similarly adored for the women. The people knew of this and the anticipation of getting these trinkets were on the minds of many in attendance. Then things got ugly. A rumor began to circulate, likely false, that there were not enough souvenirs to go around and that they would be given out on a first-come, first-served basis. People in the back of the crowd began to push forward, forcing the unprepared people in the front to move unwillingly as they could see the trenches and craters in front of them. Thousands of people began to fall into the holes and were trampled on by the people from behind with the outmanned Cossacks helpless in their attempts to stop the carnage. It was reported that one Cossack, along with his horse, were lifted into the air by the surging masses. It wasn't until another hastily called upon squadron of mounted Cossacks arrived that order was restored. In the brief ten minutes of panic, 1,389 men, women, and children perished. Close to 1,500 were injured as well. This was considered a very bad omen by the highly suspicious Russian people. But what followed was one of the numerous baffling reactions that Nicholas was to have during his reign. Informed about the tragedy at 10.30 a.m., Nicholas was shattered. His first thought was head to the Kadinka field and get a first-hand look at things. Then, as he so often did, he listened to his family. His mother told him not to go, fearing for his life. This utterly stupid decision was to haunt his time on the throne until the end and would give fuel to his critics both on the left and the right, earning him the nickname Bloody Nicholas. But to his credit, he did give 1,000 rubles for each victim to their family and paid for a coffin for each one instead of allowing for the uh, customary mass grave. Few knew of this as these good deeds were overshadowed by the tragedy. I guess things would have turned out differently in the court of public opinion if Nicholas had listened to his mother Maria's second piece of advice, which was to cancel all coronation celebrations in respect for the dead. Now think of this. Had the Tsar not listened to the Dowager Empress and gone to the Kadinka field and then listened to her and canceled the celebrations that followed, 
Some have actually speculated that his reign may not have tumbled when it did, and that the Soviet Union may never have come about. But I'm not of that opinion, as you'll see in the coming episodes, because this is not the only time Nicholas would make the wrong decision based on advice given to him by his family. That night, the royal couple, along with all the invited guests, danced and supped as if nothing had happened that morning. Not only that, but the celebration for the people was held as well that day, with musicians, performers, and street vendors going on in the midst of carts carrying the dead and wounded, passing them by. Next time, we continue on with the ill-fated reign of Nicholas, tracking the birth of his many daughters as well as the birth of their son, Alexis, heir to the throne. Also, we will review the beginning of the disastrous war with Japan that was to expose the total lack of leadership of the Tsar. Now, for a reading from Russian history. And this one is particularly brutal. Uh, it is about Ivan the Terrible again. And this is about the murder of the people of Novgorod. And this comes from 1570, where the city of Novgorod, which had been fighting against uh, Ivan's rule, uh, came about, and this is what he did. The Tsar commanded that the powerful boyars, the important merchants, the administrative officials, and the citizens of every rank be brought before him, together with their wives and children. The Tsar ordered that they be tortured in his presence in various spiteful, horrible, and inhumane ways. After many various unspeakable and bitter tortures, the Tsar ordered that their bodies be tormented and roasted with fire in refined ways. He ordered that each man be tied to a sled, be dragged to the Volkov Bridge behind fast-moving sleds, and be thrown into the Volkov River from the bridge. The Tsar ordered that their wives and children be brought to the Volkov Bridge, where a high platform had been erected. He commanded that they be chained on the arms and legs, and that the children be tied to their mothers, and then be thrown from the platform into the waters of the Volkov River. Meanwhile, the Tsar's men, nobles and soldiers, moved about in small boats on the Volkov River, armed with spears, lances, hooks, and axes. When the people, men and women of all ages, surfaced, they were stabbed by the soldiers with hooks, lances, and spears, or they were struck with axes. In a horrible manner, they were submerged without mercy in the depths of the river and abandoned to a terrible and bitter death. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, please go to the iTunes, of course, and if you can, give me a favorable rating if you like what you hear here, as it will really help me move up the podcast rankings. Also, don't forget to join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group, where you can ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion. And now, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.